0: The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Friends, for those of you who have been around for a while now, you know that God is doing great things here at the King's Chapel. Every week, I'm seeing people who are coming to faith, saving faith in Jesus through your ministry. Um, repenting of sin, some of you, that's your story. Your, your life is beginning to turn toward Christ-likeness. I see people like Tyler and there are, there are others who are responding to the calling of God and stepping into new ministries. Some of you are starting new Bible studies. Your children that we just sent out of the room, this is so exciting to me, they're beginning to, to seek the Lord and ask good questions. And we have every week children uh, either professing faith in Jesus or talking about what's next, asking about baptism, asking about uh, the church. Why? Why is this happening? Well, it's because God is always at work. He is always at work in our midst. And maybe perhaps today and and lately, we've begun to simply join him in what he's already doing, to pay attention to where he's at work and join the work that he was doing. Or, Or maybe today is the day that you respond to that invitation into more. God is stirring in this church. Do you sense it? Do you perceive him at work in our midst? God is at at work pouring out his love on us here as as we're joined to the momentum of his movement. It's one thing to minister in our own strength and to just do our best and and do the next program and the next thing and, and be overwhelmed and overburdened. It's an entirely different thing to simply step into the momentum of God's movement and participate in the work that he is doing in his power and in his strength. But here's the thing, as excited as I am about the work of God here at the King's Chapel, and I am, I am very excited. There's a church in the scriptures that we'll look at over the coming months that that has all that going on and then some. It's far beyond anything that's happening so far here at the King's Chapel. Compared to this church, we are like the JV or even worse, we're like the freshman team. We barely even register compared to what's going on in, in this church that we'll be looking at over the coming weeks. See, this church was founded on the mighty preaching of a man named Apollos. This church was planted and established by the apostle Paul, pastored by Timothy. And the beloved disciple of Jesus, John, he moves to the city to become an elder in this church, likely bringing with him, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's been committed to his charge and his care by Jesus. The gospel of John is finalized and distributed from this church. The, the letters of First and Second Timothy and a letter from Jesus himself in Revelation are addressed to this church, all commending their faithfulness and yet calling them back to a renewed, unified love for Jesus in response to his love. Next week, that's what we'll begin to look at. We'll be going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. But this week, what I want to do is simply look at the beginning of this church in Ephesus, the church to which this letter is addressed. And I want to look at the birth of the church. I want want to ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19, because this story really flows from the end of 18 through 19. For those of you who have been around for more than a couple years, you know that uh, back in 2020 and 2021, we spent about a year and a half preaching through the book of Acts. So you'll remember these passages. You may even remember some of the things that I have to say today, but here's the good news. This time you get to hear it without social distancing. Amen? (laughs) In this book, we're going to see the beginning of the church in Acts, That's what Acts is all about. The beginning of the church at Pentecost, as these believers are gathered together, the spirit is poured out on them and then they go out and begin to minister in the power and might of the spirit of God and thousands come to faith in Jerusalem. From there, opposition arises, persecution. And and over time, the church gets squeezed down, but then actually out into the surrounding regions, bringing with them this gospel, this good news of what Jesus has done. And as the church spreads, they begin to establish churches in places like Antioch. And people like the apostle Paul come into ministry. And that's what actually really the second half of Acts is all about, is, is the ministry of Paul. See, Paul was someone who, if you remember his story, he is a persecutor of the church, named Saul. He's an enemy of the people of God. He's going from place to place and in his religious zeal, he is in opposition to the gospel, to Jesus and his followers. But remember what happens to Paul as he's journeying to basically make life very difficult for Christians. He gets struck down off his horse, stopped in his tracks, is confronted by the living Jesus and his life is dramatically changed changed so much that he becomes the leading missionary of this Christian movement, this great apostle who who goes and plants churches everywhere he goes. And so what what I want you to see as we fire up his second missionary journey is, is this is what the life of Paul was like for years on end. He has this home church up in Antioch, which you'll see over on the east side over here in Syria, there in Antioch, that's his home church. That's a great church. They have a wonderful elders. The, the spirit of God is moving in power there. But Paul is sent out, selected by the spirit with Barnabas to be sent out on these missionary journeys. So he goes and he goes to first kind of his homeland lands in, in the South of Asia Minor, where he's been born. And then he travels from place to place to the islands, to the coastal cities, eventually to the mountains and in the inland regions of Asia Minor, that's modern day Turkey. And as he goes, he does basically one thing. He preaches Jesus. He starts out in the synagogues to his brethren in the flesh, Jewish people, teaching them from the scriptures that they're all about Jesus. And then when they reject him, if they turn away from him, he's also preaching to Gentiles, actually to anyone who will listen. And wherever he can find a group who will believe and join together, he establishes churches as he goes. On his second missionary journey, this is what he's doing throughout Asia Minor, but on his way home, he, he decides at some point, it's time to go home, back to Antioch, to be refreshed, to be with uh, the fellow believers. But on the way, he stops in a city that he will never forget, the city Ephesus, where he spends just one weekend with them. He spends one Sabbath Saturday with the people in Ephesus. But what he experiences there is a city in desperate need of the gospel. And and he makes a commitment at some point to return to this place. See, Ephesus was a big city. It is the center of of Roman power in the area. It is a trade hub. It's a a sprawling center of of commerce and religion and and religious commercialization in Asia Minor. This is home to the temple, the great temple, one of the, uh, the wonders of the ancient world, the great temple of Artemis the goddess, also known as Diana, this fertility goddess, this great temple. This was a city that had an amphitheater that could fit 50,000 people. Picture that. I mean, we have these big modern stadiums, but back in that day, to have a a facility with that kind of capacity was astounding. And people would gather there for entertainment or or for political discussion, for large events. And we see that actually take place in the book of Acts. This is a massive place and a place that on the surface would not be very receptive to the gospel. It's actually not that unlike Northern Virginia or Washington DC. As we look at that area, they are people in Ephesus who already have their life figured out. The economy is strong. Their religion is 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 committed. They, all of them, it seems, participate in this this worship of Artemis, and they all have idols and treasures that prove that they are faithful followers of the regional goddess there. On the surface, this is not a place that seems very likely to gladly receive the message of Jesus. And yet it's a place where God is determined to do great things through ordinary people. And so Paul recognizes this place as as the Star Wars nerds would call it. it. It is a wretched hive of scum and villainy and he is committed to returning to do something in Ephesus. And so he goes back. And if you fire up the map for his third missionary journey um, that you probably can't see from where you're sitting anyway, but but eventually after staying in Antioch, he goes up around through Cilicia and he goes rather than by boat to the inland country, eventually landing at Ephesus, which is miles off the Western coast of Turkey. And when he arrives in Ephesus, what he finds is is something somewhat surprising. He finds that there are already a group of believers there, a group of followers of Jesus who have responded to a gospel message proclaimed by a mighty preacher, an evangelist evangelist named Apollos. I want to look at Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. I'm just gonna read two verses here. It says, now a Jew named Apollos which is a great name. I love that name. If you're looking for one for your sons, consider it. A native of Alexandria. Now, Alexandria is like the learning capital of the world at this time. If you want knowledge, if you want education, Alexandria is the place to go. And this is where this this young Greek Jewish man, Apollos, has learned the scriptures. It says he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. What a description, right? This is a a way that this man Apollos is described that really puts all the other great preachers we see in the New Testament to shame. Peter's not described this way. Paul is not described this way having this much eloquence, this kind of zeal. I would love to be described this way. I would love if you came up to me after a sermon and said, wow, Mark, that was so fervent. I would love that. (laughs) Consider that as an encouragement. (laughs) But here's this individual who is wasting no time as he goes from place to place, preaching, telling everyone he can about Jesus. And he comes to Ephesus and, and like he does in every other place he goes, He preaches passionately and with eloquence, the living God, Jesus Christ. But there's something missing in his understanding, which we'll see as the passage continues. It says, he spoke accurately and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though here's what he's missing. It says, he knew only the baptism of John. Note that. He knew only the baptism of John. So what is the baptism of of John? We know that John the baptizer, he was a prophet and he was a forerunner to Jesus. And he came declaring, uh, paving a way for the one who was to come. That is Jesus. And so what people did in preparation for the coming of the Messiah is they would go into water and be baptized with John as a sign of their repentance, of their turning away from sin. But John, as he preaches, he, he tells all the people that will listen that there is something more coming. Something more coming. Apollos, it says, though, began to speak Boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him and they, they hear him and as he's preaching, he seems to be missing this, this, this more that is coming. They took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately See, Priscilla and Aquila are there in town in Ephesus. They've been left behind by Paul. They're friends of his. And this married couple is there listening to the the fervent preaching of this man, Apollos. And they're very impressed with his preaching. And it's effective and it's powerful. But they can see in his preaching that he's missing something. And they know what it is. And so it says, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Here are these friends of Paul staying behind, hearing this young man preach in Ephesus. They see some things that he doesn't yet understand. And so they, they type out some critical emails to him. And um, they don't do that. You all don't do that either, which is awesome. I appreciate that. They do what you do. It says, they took him aside. Both husband and wife take him aside privately and gently instruct him. Now, this is a great model for us. I'm grateful that our our church is this way. I have people in my life like this, people who will pull me aside after a sermon and privately encourage and admonish and if necessary, correct me or offer some additional helpful insights, things that I might have missed or or might have stumbled in my speaking over. And and so people will do that for me often. And I, I love that I have people like that in my life who don't just sit here and think, well, whatever Pastor Mark says, no, they search the scriptures And when necessary, bring correction or addition to these messages. This spiritual mother and father, they come to Apollos and they don't criticize him. They don't say step down. They stop preaching. They connect with him and they correct him. And even better, he listens to their correction eagerly, humbly. Now, I want to ask you this morning, do you have people like that in your life? People that have permission to speak the truth, even when it's hard to hear, into your life. To correct things where they're off. To, to maybe encourage you in a different direction? Do you have that kind of person or people in your life? And, and maybe an even more important question, when people come to you with a correction or a critique, how do you respond to it? Do you respond with humility? Do you accept or at least consider what people have to say? Or do your walls immediately go up in defensiveness? There's a picture here in Apollos of someone who's supremely gifted, and it apparently has the humility to receive correction from people who are more mature, more seasoned in their faith, and who have more experience in particularly the work of the spirit, which we're going to see in just a moment. It says then about Apollos in verse 27, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him. And they said, go for it. They encouraged him and sent him out. And it says, they wrote to the disciples who were there to welcome him. And so he moves to some of the coastal towns. Eventually he will land at Corinth. And it says, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. I want you to picture some of these immature churches just trying to get their start and preaching's hard. And here comes this gifted preacher and he steps in and he's able to support and encourage and build up these small congregations that are beginning to grow. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Jesus. And so he's been preaching in Ephesus. Apollos leaves behind this preaching ministry that he's established in Ephesus, and he moves on to preach Jesus in the surrounding countryside, powerfully telling the Jewish people especially that this word, this Bible is all about Jesus, that the Old Testament from cover to cover is about Jesus. And they hear it, and many of them hear it gladly. Now, now, here's the question, though. As we look at this discussion of Apollos, and we consider what Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside to tell him, it would cause us to wonder, what was missing from Apollos' teaching? What was he lacking in his understanding? What did he not know? It's kind of the key interpretive question of this passage, isn't it? And what it clearly says, and what it reveals, and we'll see that as the passage continues in chapter 19, is that he only knew the baptism of John. And what he appears to be missing is an understanding of what occurred at Pentecost, Back in Jerusalem, this will become clear as we see what happens next. But what's clear is that there's a difference in Scripture between the baptism of repentance that John that John brings and the baptism that Jesus brings. John knew this. John the Baptizer he says it this way in Matthew three eleven. He says, "I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." John 1.33, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit descend and rest, that's Jesus, is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Mark 1.8 says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the? That's right. Luke 3.16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And if you think this is just John's idea, something he came up with, listen to what Jesus says about himself in Acts chapter one in verse four and five. It says, while staying with them, the disciples, this is resurrected Jesus. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit not many days from now, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So scripture is pretty clear. John brought a baptism in water for repentance, but Jesus would baptize with his spirit and with power, and that's exactly what happens. In Acts at Pentecost, God's spirit fell upon 120 believers who are gathered together, praying in an upper room. And they went from being timid, scared, fearful followers to bold, empowered witnesses. They pour out in the streets after the spirit comes upon them, praising and uh, praying to God in languages they've never learned or known. And they begin preaching the word in the common languages with power and boldness. They prophesy, they speak forth as as God gives them utterance and and they proclaim Jesus. And, And what happens? Thousands come to faith in Jesus, thousands within days. The church grows at a monumental rate. Apollos has been preaching in Ephesus and he's been preaching Jesus and he's been doing it well, but there's something missing. And if the people of Ephesus have been primarily hearing from Apollos, what aspect of their understanding might be missing? I think we'll see that in a moment. Apollos leaves town and now Paul arrives. And he arrives and he finds believers there and he arrives to strengthen Ephesus and to further establish a church there in Ephesus. And he's gonna stay here and teach for almost three years. This is the longest time that the missionary Paul spends in any city during his journeys. And so I wanna keep reading in Acts chapter 19 because this chapter division between 18 and 19 is really a bad chapter division. You should know as we read the scripture that the word of God is, is inspired by God, but these chapter and verse numbers are not. They're added in later by humans trying to make a, it helpful for us. But here they just totally interrupt the flow of this passage. What's been taking place in Ephesus and what takes place next. So keep that in mind when you're reading through your one year Bibles. Go back as you're going through these reading plans and see what happens before. And then look and see what happens next. It may give some additional context. But it says that it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. Now, there are some who, Bible commentaries, and maybe even some of your study notes, who would say that that these were disciples of John, not disciples of Jesus. But actually, when we see the author of Acts and Luke, the physician Luke, write about the the, uh, the, uh, disciples of John, he always uses that qualifier, disciples of John. Here he simply says disciples, which is a word he uses often and exclusively to describe what? Christians, followers of Jesus. So Paul sits down with this group of disciples that he finds in Ephesus, this small group of believers. It's about a dozen people. And seeing that they believed in Jesus, I want you to picture yourself in in a room that fits maybe a dozen or so people And he sits down with them and he's talking to them about the scriptures. He talks to them about this belief that they have in Jesus and seeing that they believed in Jesus, he asks them a question. He says to them in verse two, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. And they say, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, had they they really not heard of the Holy Spirit? Now, if, if they studied the Old Testament, the prophets talk about the Holy Spirit often. In fact, John the Baptist, who has been preaching ahead of time, the precursor to Jesus, he, as we just saw, talked about the Holy Spirit often. So when they say, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, what they seem to be completely aware of is not of Jesus, but that the Holy Spirit would come to indwell believers, to empower believers for ministry. Again, they seem completely unaware of Pentecost in the way in which the apostles and other believers received the spirit. And Paul says to them in verse three, into what then were you baptized? Into what? Meaning into what medium, into what substance? See in baptism, there are three elements. There's the one being baptized. There's the one doing the baptizing. And then there's the element into which one is baptized. And they say to him, we were baptized into John's baptism. That is, they were baptized in water for repentance. And Paul says to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is, as far as I know, the only account of rebaptism in Scripture. There's no indication that the apostles were ever rebaptized in the name of Jesus, yet we do know that at Pentecost they did receive a baptism. A baptism of fire. And here, these men, having believed in Jesus, having their understanding strengthened, they are baptized in the name of Jesus. And I want you to see what happens next. Verse six. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So picture yourself in the room. As this happens, for some of you, this would be really exciting. For others, it would be really overwhelming and uncomfortable. Actually, I think all of you, all of us, would be overwhelmed with the tangible presence and power of God in that place. Paul begins to pray and lay hands on them. And then something they've never seen, something they've never experienced, something that that did not come through the suggestion of Paul or any tricks begins to happen. The Spirit of God manifests tangibly in that place. They can feel the power and the presence of God in that place. Not only can can they sense his presence upon them, they begin first with a whisper and then a trickle of words and then speaking out loud. They begin to speak in languages that they've never learned, that they've never known. And they begin to pray and praise. And as they're praying and praising in these unknown languages, some of them begin to speak out in languages they do know, prophecy to speak forth in in human terms what God is spontaneously bringing to their minds. And and this this room becomes loud with the sounds of prayer, praise, proclamation, and prophecy. They can't help but speak out for no one else's edification but their own, for no sign to anyone else but for those that are in the room. It says that they prophesied. And and here on the foundation of Apollos' teaching, suddenly the Holy Spirit of God empowers them in a supernatural way, in a way that they've never experienced. And here, in this way, the beloved church of Ephesus begins. On that day, some 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit fell upon the believers in Ephesus, filled them, empowered them to be his witnesses, just as he had at Pentecost, just as he had in, in Samaria to believers, just as he had in the household of Cornelius to Gentile believers. And now here again, to the Ephesians. Why? Why? Why was it necessary for the believers to have this kind of experience here, to be filled with, immersed in the Holy Spirit? Here's why, Jesus says why. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why did this take place? The power of Pentecost was for the purpose of Pentecost so that believers would be emboldened and empowered to go out and to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I wonder about you, I feel this often. Do you ever feel like you don't have what it takes to effectively proclaim Christ? That you don't have the boldness, that you don't have the inspiration, the clarity, the passion, the zeal, that you don't have what it takes And that if it's all on you, not a lot of people are going to hear the gospel. Here's the good news. It was never meant to be all on you. God has given us his spirit. Believer, each one of you, and this room is full of believers. You are indwelt by the spirit of God. Your ministry is to be empowered by the spirit of God. Your effectiveness will be through the effectiveness of the spirit of God in drawing others to himself as we yield to the work of his spirit in us. You have all of the Holy Spirit, Christian. The question is, does he have all of you? As we've said before, are there parts of your life, are there areas in your heart, in your mind where you say, Holy Spirit, you can have access to this and to that and to that, but not that. That's mine. That's my area. Hands off. Do we treat the Holy Spirit of God like he's a guest in our home? Like, you can have some of the things from the refrigerator, but please don't go to the downstairs fridge and take anything from there. Do we do that? See, like a guest in our house, or we see the master of the house. Have we yielded ourselves to the goodness and the influence of the Spirit of God? If not, today's a fresh invitation to do that to say, You can have all of me. All of me. Holy Spirit, I invite you to work in me, even in ways that I don't understand, for the sake of your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. Does he have all of you? See, at conversion, the Holy Spirit immersed you into the body of Christ. And we commemorate that and celebrate that rebirth, the working out of what he's already done through water baptism. But now as a member of the body of Christ, Jesus himself longs to empower you, to immerse you in his spirit, to clothe you with power for the sake of being an effective witness. We need his power. The disciples were weak, fearful, powerless. But when the spirit came upon them and he did more than once, they were empowered for gospel proclamation. They were empowered to recognize and walk in spiritual gifts that had been just a seed in them before when they first believed. They were empowered to live this Christian life and empowered to build the church. See, the purpose of Pentecost was for us, for believers that you would be clothed with power through the infilling of the Holy Spirit to be effective witnesses. And I believe that God desires to continue that work through you, even now. Are you different from the disciples? In some ways, yes, of course, they live in a a different day and era. But for you as followers of Jesus, you are just like these disciples, believers in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You are regenerated. You are born again of his spirit. You are sealed by his spirit. You are assured by his spirit that you are loved and accepted by Christ, indwelt by his spirit. The Holy Spirit guarantees your redemption. Every believer has received the indwelling Holy Spirit. But what scripture reveals is that it's one thing to be born of the spirit as the disciples were on the evening of the resurrection. And it's quite another thing to be immersed in the spirit, empowered for this spirit-filled work. And what happens next as a result of this for these Ephesian believers in Ephesus is, is nothing short of astounding. It says in verse eight, he entered the synagogue. This is Paul after having this this amazing time with these disciples. It says he entered the synagogue and, and for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He's coming week after week to the synagogue. Paul is proclaiming Christ. It says though, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him. And so they go and they find a a public place. They find a, a secular institution, the Hall of Tyrannus, where they're going to continue to preach Jesus with boldness. And it says this continued, this kind of daily preaching of the word for two years. So that, listen to this result, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is not an exaggeration. Ephesus is a place where people from all over the region are passing through, coming and going. And this word of Jesus gets spread through these individuals, through the preaching of Paul from one place, it goes out to the surrounding region so that there is not one person in all of Asia Minor who can say, I've never heard of Jesus. How amazing is that? How amazing is the work of God that he would prevail in in such a way. God works mightily through Paul. through these ordinary believers through this small group and is a catalyst for the gospel transformation of an entire region. The entire region changes. Listen to this. It says in verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. God is validating their ministry. He's backing it up. He's proving its reality through miraculous signs and wonders through the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. People are following Paul around, taking his tissues out of the trash to bring them home to their sick relatives. So mighty is the power of God in this setting as the gospel is going forth. People who have just touched his apron, as they bring that touch to their loved ones, diseases leave. Evil spirits flee. This is the power of Jesus, not the power of Paul. This is the power of Jesus through his Holy Spirit. And this spiritual deliverance, it continues throughout the chapter as people in darkness are brought into salvation light, so much so that the entire economy of the region of idol making and selling and false religion and religious commercialization, this entire industry dries up, is bankrupted. I invite you to read Acts chapter 19, the rest of it on your own and to see there's some pretty exciting things that happen like there are some who go out and, and try to use the name of Jesus to drive out demons and uh, they're not actually believers themselves. And, and just to make a long story short, they leave that battle without their clothes, which is the sign of not doing so well, right? Um, but Paul and the true believers, they continue in this mighty work and everything about this region is changed. It says, fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. What if? fear of the Lord fell upon Northern Virginia through the spirit empowered work of ordinary believers. What if the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, not cursed, not mocked, but extolled, glorified by everyone as they see his power at work through his church. It says also many of those who were now believers came confessing, and divulging their practices. Confession and repentance is is a part of revival anywhere. This is not revival. This is brand new. And they're confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They are throwing it all away. And it says they can count the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. They're letting it burn. They're leaving it behind. As they turn to Jesus and live in this new life, it is better than any possession. It is better than any other religion. It is better than their false goddesses and idols. Jesus is better. And as they see that, they are willing to lay down everything else, even their most prized, precious treasures. And the spiritual warfare there is very real, but it says the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This makes things hard for the Christians in Ephesus. As we live faithfully, as we proclaim him, things will not be easy. Because what we see in Acts is that as they preach this word, it changes the economy. Those who are thriving on religious commercialization, their income dries up and they're upset about it. It changes the systems. It's, it's profoundly disruptive. And I wanna see that this does make things hard for Christians in Ephesus. But as you look around at the culture, do you see, see things that give you a holy frustration? Maybe it's our politics. Maybe it's the, the way business is done in our land. Maybe it's the public school system or, or your neighborhood council. I don't know what it is, but as you look at these different systems and places, whatever it is, as Christians go out in power and proclaim the name of Jesus, it has the power to change even the social systems that rule a land profoundly. And that's encouraging. That's exciting. My prayer for our church is that God would do this kind of work through us that lives would be transformed by the preaching of God's word, that individuals would be empowered by God's spirit to bring the light and life of the gospel into the schools, into the halls of government, into the ethics of our small businesses to transform Northern Virginia, a region for the sake of Christ. Will this come with spiritual opposition? Absolutely. And the more intense that opposition is, you can be sure that that will be in direct proportion to our zeal for the Lord. In our pursuit of his mission, we can expect it. But as we look ahead at the book of Ephesians, this will be so important to us as we get into this in the coming weeks, as we stay anchored in our identity in Christ, as we stay unified, unified as believers, one as believers, we will be able to stand firm against the strongest attacks of the evil one, steadfast, in love incorruptible, I want to invite the band up. We're going to respond through worship as we conclude. But I want to say to you, some of you may be like the believers in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. You've not even heard there was a Holy Spirit. Your, your Trinity has been Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And today is an invitation for you to consider that God himself has indwelt you believer by his spirit. Would you yield to him? If you want that, Pray. Speak to your friend and Lord Jesus and invite him to fill you with his spirit, to empower you for his work. Ask him to and believe by faith that you have what you've asked for and then begin to live it out, walk in it. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you're confused about all this Holy Spirit talk this morning, I would simply say, this is the word for you. You have been drawn here this morning by his Holy Spirit. He is at work on your life before he's at work in your life. And you're here today because he's drawing you to the good news that through the cross of Christ, you can hear this today as you turn and believe to him, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And as you believe in what he's accomplished for you on the cross and that he rose to new life, you can receive that new life, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, cleansing through what he's done. Keep coming back. There's more. There's more. He has more in store for you. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the world-changing work of your spirit that when you led us to believing and saving faith in you, that you did not leave us alone. We thank you that you've given us your spirit to empower us in our weakness, to strengthen us, to embolden us, that we might be effective witnesses, not because of our good deeds or our good performance. Lord, there's some people here that that are just wallowing in the depths of their sin. I pray today they would experience just a fresh touch of your grace and mercy and know that your indwelling spirit has not left, that you have not changed, and the work continues even through broken vessels. God, we thank you and we praise you that your work is continuing here in this place and we pray you continue to bring a, a mighty transformation to this region. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's people over here that would love to pray for you as we respond, but for everyone, I invite you to stand and respond by praising our Lord.